Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. We are seeing some awful scenes emerge from Ukraine as Russia's invasion of that country continues. Now, many of the scenes have people wondering if we are seeing war crimes committed in real time. So we got to thinking, what actually constitutes a war crime and who investigates war crimes? Important questions. And to get some answers and talk more about this, we reached out to Rachel Lopez. She is an associate professor of law at Drexel University's Klein School of Law. So we kind of wanted to start, let's just kind of set the table what constitutes a war crime is there like a definition that atrocities allegations are measured against you know basically what are we talking about here what what is a war crime there are many different definitions of war crimes depending on the context it's defined both in international humanitarian law and also international criminal law I want to talk to you a little bit about what it means under international criminal law. Now, again, I'm going to have to be brief because the actual definition is a four page long definition of what war crimes constitute. But given that we're talking here about the situation in Ukraine, I'm going to highlight parts of the Rome Statute. So the Rome Statute is the treaty that different countries around the world have signed on to that constitute the International Criminal Court, which has the power to try and convict individuals for international crimes. There are four crimes, uh, just to give you a little bit of background, there are four crimes that this international tribunal can prosecute. Uh, One is crimes against humanity. Another one is genocide. Another one is uh, crimes of aggression, which we'll hopefully talk about later on. Uh, And the last of which is war crimes. And so people at this moment are asking, is what Russia and Putin are doing, do those constitute war crimes? And the answer really is yes. Um, War crimes, among other definitions, include the extensive uh, destruction and appropriation of property that is not justified by military necessity. For the purposes of the acts that have happened uh, across Ukraine and the targeting of civilians, that too is uh, directly under the Rome Statute's definition of war crimes, which um, basically says that if you are directly attacking civilian populations that are not taking part in hostilities, such as occurred with the bombing at the maternity ward and the uh, bombing of individuals fleeing the conflict, that too constitutes war crimes. The key here, of course, is um, just like with any crime, you have to establish what's called mens rea, meaning that the person who did it must do it intentionally. So so Putin and his armed forces must be intentionally um, attacking civilians. And there's some evidence of this, of course, but it can't be by accident. So when it comes to war crimes, you mentioned the International Criminal Court. Is that the only body that has the power to investigate it? Like, is this something that individual countries, if a new government comes in in Russia, could they look into it? Could the Ukrainian government look into it? Could anyone look into it? Or does it have to specifically be an international court like that? 
That, that's a really great question. Um, the answer is, um, although the ICC is the primary tribunal that has jurisdiction, there is a concept called universal jurisdiction, which allows states to prosecute and convict individuals uh, when they commit actions like war crimes or crimes of aggression. So what happens in these sorts of cases? So, you know, traditionally courts must have some link to the conduct in order to prosecute and try individuals. Either the victim has to come from that country, the act has to have occurred in the territory of that country. Um, in the instance of universal jurisdiction, no connection is required. And so many countries right now in this moment are uh, using universal jurisdiction to open cases against Putin and other military officials from Russia. So for example, Poland, Sweden, and Germany have all opened investigations into war crimes um, committed by the Russians in Ukraine. So this is actively happening every day. It seems like another country is opening an investigation into these acts, um, though the ICC has been the primary jurisdiction or the primary place where these uh, prosecutions are happening. To the point of the investigations, I mean, it is a war zone. Are there people on the ground collecting evidence and talking to people? Is this something that as long as it's an active war zone is done in the cyber realm and, and such? Uh, is there uh, you know, what's kind of the procedure here? The challenge, obviously, um, with these sorts of crimes is the collection of evidence. It's it's a classic problem that occurs in these cases because, of course, it's really challenging to collect this sort of evidence on the ground in the midst of a conflict. The ICC prosecutor, a gentleman named uh, uh, Kareem Khan, has already visited the Ukraine, meeting with Zelensky and other officials in Ukraine to start the process of gathering evidence. Um, of course, none of this is open in terms of what was exchanged, but there is active um, investigations happening now, and the ICC has opened officially an investigation into war crimes um, in the Ukraine. And another sort of interesting feature of the ICC is that they also collect evidence that has been gathered by civilians. So video that's being collected on the ground there can be shared with the ICC. Of course, it would need to be verified to ever be used in court. But it's something unique about this tribunal that um, increasingly there is this sort of user user generated evidence um, that is collected and used by prosecutors in the court. Needless to say, this is a long process. Like even this would, I would imagine any kinds of investigations would drag on long past when the conflict is over. Am I correct? Presumably, yes, though there is an instance in which in which the ICC did issue an arrest warrant um, against the basically the leader of the Sudan during um, the, the conflict there. So there is precedent for the ICC to open you know, well, they already have opened an investigation into war crimes, but to issue an arrest warrant against Putin. And the significance of that is, right, that he would be unable to travel to any countries which are cooperating with the ICC because he would be detained and then extradited to the ICC. So it does constrain his ability uh, to travel. It would, we, if, if, they, if they were to, so just to be clear, they've not issued an arrest warrant yet, but if they did. Do we have any examples in recent history of people being held accountable for war crimes? 
Absolutely. So the ICC, um, in recent years, they've only um, been um, essentially open for business for uh, a little over a decade now, but um, they have uh, successfully prosecuted three, at least three uh, individuals for war crimes. Um, those crimes were committed in Uganda in the DRC. Um, and it, I believe the last one was in, in Mali. Um, but yes, there have been individuals that have been convicted um, uh, by the ICC for war crimes specifically. Could there be an argument made that the entire war is a war crime like that this is in a it's an illegal war it's based on uh, a fantasy on false allegations uh i mean and that anyone that took part from the russian point could be held liable that that's exactly right so i mentioned that the icc has a crime called the crime of aggression the crime of aggression basically means that um, a legal war is um, war that is not authorized by international law is illegal and can be criminally prosecuted. So your question might be, well, what makes a war illegal? Essentially, um, the UN Charter provides that any use of force or even threats of use of force that undermine uh, sort of the territorial integrity or political independence of a country is illegal under Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, unless, and this is an important exception in this instance because it's what the Russians are evoking here, unless um, they are, um, the use of force is basically in self-defense, either individual or collective self-defense, or the country consents to that, that military um, being there, which was the case in Afghanistan for the US for many years. So where does this get us? Um, so the Russians essentially are alleging basically that Ukraine was involved in genocide. So they're saying that under Article 51 of the UN Charter, they're ex exercising what's called uh, collective self-defense. So basically Russia is saying genocide is happening, the Ukrainians are doing it, and we um, are, are exercising our right to, in collective self-defense to use force. Now, there's um, a proceeding actually pending in the International Court of Justice that addresses this very issue. Ukraine uh, filed a complaint with the International Court of Justice saying that Russia's allegations of genocide are unfounded, and therefore this, the war is illegal and a violation of the crime of aggression. What's the line between like a war crime and the violation of human rights? in this situation is the the war crime the higher statute i would imagine yeah so the human human rights is uh oftentimes they're sort of completed when we think of war crimes we're talking about criminal acts and criminal acts are directed at you know they're committed by individuals Often when we talk about human rights violations we're talking about state accountability and there are a different set of these are overlapping by you know, by a lot of, um, you know, on a lot of measures, um, but there are a different set of accountability and a different question. Whether war crimes committed uh, were committed is a different question from whether um, human rights violations have been committed in Ukraine. Um, so, so really, it's a separate, separate calculation under international law. We met. You mentioned some people that have been held accountable. Uh, for war crimes in recent history, what was kind of the the penalties that were 
that that were handed out? What were the sentences? So I can tell you that um, oftentimes the sentences are are much, uh, especially given U.S. standards, much more mild. So, for example, um, one individual was sentenced to uh, nine years of imprisonment for war crimes. His his crimes involved destruction of religious uh, property. Um, so it was, you know, obviously a, a less significant case. But in general, the t- the types of sentences that are handed down by the ICC are much less stringent than. Um, what we would consider to be the norm here in the U.S., usually under 20 years. That being said, I'm interested. You mentioned the ICC is a little more than a decade that's been firmly established. Would this conflict be looked at as an opportunity to kind of show the world what this court can do? Because this, this conflict is you know, on display across the globe. It is front and center on everyone's eyes. And this court could set some precedent to maybe help deter something like this in the future by, you know, obviously going where the facts lead and and the evidence leads, but really kind of dropping the hammer here. Like, you know, in the future, if you do X, you're going to pay for it. Yeah, there, there. Certainly, for all of the cases, I mean, there are so many cases that are that are pending right now. I mentioned the cases um, that are pending in Sweden and Germany, the ICC, and the International Court of Justice. I think that all of us um, are hoping that international law matters in this moment because I, a lot of people, especially in the initial days of this crisis, were wondering, well, international law didn't do a lot to prevent this. And so I think there's some hope. And, and actually, a, a Ukrainian scholar recently wrote an article saying how this has renewed her faith in international law because of the activity that's happening. And we should be clear, I, I want to be very explicit about this, is that in some ways, the UN system, which was designed to prevent this type of aggression, failed. And the reason is, is that the United Nations structure is built on essentially the legacies of World War II, which gives Russia veto power at the Security Council to essentially veto any resolution that would condemn the acts that it's engaging in in Ukraine. So a lot of international lawyers are um, feeling like the United Nations has not um, lived up to its promise of preventing aggressive war, of essentially avoiding war. And so I guess the hope to answer your question of whether these other tribunals can in the place of what the Security Council and the UN was meant to do, create some sort of deterrence. I mean, that's indeed the goal of all this. Will it actually happen? In the past, there's been mixed evidence. Research shows that uh, it's it's uncertain whether these types of international prosecutions actually have a deterrent effect, in part because the individuals that are committing these types of um, extraordinary crimes are unlikely to be deterred by conviction. So, in fact, what what uh, research has somewhat indicated is that they can possibly not want to surrender or, um, you know, engage in peace negotiations because of fear of prosecution. So, it could really go both ways. Surely, the hope is that this will be an example that we can make an example of Putin and ensure that these types of egregious atrocities are not uh, committed in the future. But that sort of remains to be seen if, if that actually happens. 
And I'm curious, because one of the reasons we wanted to do this, pursue this topic was I feel like war crimes and war criminal, they're, they're terms that have very heavy and important meanings. And over the years in our discourse, they become degraded because we just throw them around for any public figure, you know, political figure we don't like and and just talk about the importance of of keeping people focused on what these things actually are, how heinous these are, and kind of the damage you can do by just labeling anything that happens internationally as a war crime or a war criminal. Absolutely. Well, I think that the the proof is in the pudding here in this instance, because one of the terms like war crimes that is thrown around is the concept of genocide, which has a very specific legal meaning under international law. And Putin, as I mentioned, is basically saying the reason why he is engaged in this war is because Ukraine is engaged in genocide. He is using the pretext of genocide essentially to justify his war crimes. Um, and, and that's a, a significant problem for international law. And so I think that exactly your point here is so, so I want to underscore your point here because I think it's because of the fast and loose use of terms like genocide and war crimes that can have a degrading effect on international law. So we need to be very explicit and careful about how we use these terms. Though I do, to be very clear, believe um, under international law that Putin has engaged in war crimes um, in the context of Ukraine. Um, of course, that remains to be adjudicated in a court of law, but just from the evidence that we have, it appears that he has engaged in war crimes. I'd like you to clear something up, something that I saw that uh, Ukraine brought a lawsuit against Russia before the International Court of Justice, and this is separate from the the criminal court. What What was going on here? So basically what's happened is that the Ukraine is saying that Russia's justification that it is using force against Ukraine because of genocide is false, that this is based on a factual inaccuracy. And so under the Geneva Convention, Ukraine has brought this lawsuit before the International Court of Justice saying that essentially under the Geneva Convention, what Russia says that the Ukraine is doing is factually incorrect and that indeed Russia is unauthorized in this war, essentially saying that the war is illegal. And there was a really important uh, order that was issued last week, um, essentially, um, at least as a preliminary matter, saying that Russia should halt all of its or but really both sides, but, but focus primarily on Russia, should halt all uh, military operations in this moment until the court is able to resolve these decisions. And one significant result of this basically is that the court has said that it has jurisdiction in this case and that it will, it will continue to adjudicate whether Russia is authorized under international law to engage in this aggressive war. What does what power does this court have? This is because this is not a, a criminal court, correct? This is not a criminal court. It is um, state versus state. And so, you know, one question that I had, I actually emailed with one of the attorneys who is um, the lead attorney for you, one of the lead attorneys for Ukraine in terms of, well, well, where does this go? How do we actually enforce this? And a part of this is, of course, going back to the UN, hoping that this will create some sort of um, initiative that the, the General Assembly will, will be more aggressive in its um, 
passing of resolutions that require more extensive sanctions against Russia, for example. I think that there's something significant about an international court, at least as a preliminary matter, saying that, that there is jurisdiction in this case and that it seems likely that Russia is in the wrong. And so the hope really about, around this is that this is going to put enough political pressure on Russia and actually probably even more so on China, which has been alleged to have been supporting Russia behind the scenes, that, that really that what it's doing is illegal and the international community is not going to stand for it. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.